The Old Testament text is, as has been noted, the 130th Psalm. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord as a watchman for the morning, as more than, I should say, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. One of the things that uh, is not difficult to see when you visit a bookstore is that the poetry section doesn't get much attention. I don't know if you've noticed that. Poetry is a genre that people are not all that interested in these days, which is odd because historically it was sort of at the center of things. You think about great epic poetry, say Paradise Lost or the Divine Comedy or the Iliad or the Odyssey or uh, the Aeneid. I mean, great stories were told in verse. One of the things that occurred in our world during the modern era was a loss of faith in words to convey uh, universals. Uh, the sense is that uh, today words refer to your own personal experience, and that's as far as it goes. And uh, that's why poetry tends to be, well, solipsistic. It's all self-referential. And if you're into a particular outlook or whatever, you can go listen to someone commiserate about their personal experience. And if you can relate to that experience, well, then the poem might speak to you. But uh, what we see in Scripture when we... Uh, see the mode or the genre turned verse, uh, something quite different is going on, and that is there is something universal, uh, and that something uh, often is, uh, be, that's being referred to is the universal human predicament. Not just the particulars, but just the, the human predicament in general. And uh, we can all relate, because we are human beings after all. Human nature is real despite what they tell you in most uh, academic settings today. Today, it's believed that human nature is completely malleable, moldable, changeable, shapeable. Um, if that's the case, then Jesus didn't uh, die for our sins. He took upon himself our nature. In other words, there's something stable. There is such a thing as human nature. It's not just sort of a socially constructed thing. It's a thing that we uh, are sort of living in and experiencing. And so there is a, a dimension to our lives, obviously, that's subjective in character. Uh, we are experiencing reality as human beings. And uh, that's all important to keep in mind because we don't know the particulars that are behind this particular psalm. We don't know the story that led to, I mean, we can, you can, we can guess, we can uh, you know, think about 
traditions that help us to situate a particular psalm in a particular situation. But even if we know nothing about the particulars of the psalmist in this particular psalm, uh, nevertheless, because we share our human nature, we can relate. We can relate. And that's important because there are some things about this psalm in particular that are worth relating to, uh, not just the problems, but the hope. I want to get to that. Now, it starts off in that first verse, out of the depths, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Now, the depths, have you ever felt down? Isn't it interesting that when I say, do you feel down? Here we have this reference to uh, kind of spatial categories that we can all relate to. Do you feel down? Well, there's something about being down that we can relate to because we've been there, and there's a kind of correspondence to sort of being up and being down in our experiences. But have you ever felt as good as dead? Sense that uh, there's been, you know, a kind of state that you've entered into where it's just dark, lifeless, hopeless, uh, and there's a sense of despair that's taken a hold of you. Um, you know, when we say, he's going down, you can think about that literally, say, with Jonah or maybe with Peter. He's going down. Uh, but you can also, I think, relate to that just an experience. You know, this guy, this gal, they're going down, they're in trouble, and uh, something needs to happen, or that person's going to stay down and be as good as dead. Uh, you know, there are other terms that we use, like a sea of troubles. Have you ever found yourself in a sea of troubles where it just seems as though just things are swirling around you that are powerful, that can make a difference in your life, and that difference is entirely bad? <laughs> you know, there's just stuff happening that you don't have any control over, just like the waves are beyond your power to, to calm. A sea of troubles. You've lacked, you lack buoyancy. There's a sense in which this reflects an overall sort of theme in Scripture. Did you ever think about the fact that when the Bible starts, you've got the deep, and the Spirit of God is brooding over the deep? And then at the very end, obviously that's Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, but at the very end, you know, things are quite different. In the beginning, things are without form and void, but at, in the end, everything is set right. And we're told in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, and the sea is no more, meaning that these troubles, these things that are overwhelming, this chaos that surrounds us, that threatens to envelop us and drown us and take us down, it's all over. It's all over and every you know, tear has been shed and the future is bright and, and the, the church lives happily ever after. That's the way the story ends. But in the meantime, here we are. Uh, and there are days probably where, maybe, and maybe this is even true for you today, you feel like you are you know, adrift in a sea of troubles and you don't know how it's all going to work out. Now, in the past, you know, people have talked about the wheel of fortune and its turning. Uh, you're probably familiar with the term wheel of fortune. It's a game show. <laughs> now, the difference between Wheel of Fortune on television uh, with it's Pat Sajak, right? And 
Vanna White, you know. And like the Wheel of Fortune in Antiquity is the, is the way the, the wheel is situated. In the television show, it's right there in front of you and it's sort of, you know, lying on, on, the, on, on a level surface in front of you. Uh, but in the depictions of the Wheel of Fortune uh, in, from the past, it's oriented in a, in a different way. There's a top and there's a bottom. And in the Wheel of Fortune, you see people on the wheel rising and falling, rising and falling. And it's intended, again, to kind of convey to you and me that things can go awry or they can go well and you find yourself on this wheel. But the thing about the Wheel of Fortune, and generally speaking with the, when it comes to fate, there's a kind of impersonal character to this. There's a sense that, well, you know, there are these forces in play, uh, maybe just you know, chance uh, in the sense that we just don't know if there's anything that is, you know, behind the things that we see happening to people. It's just things happen, you know. And there's a, there's a sense of, uh, well, it just is that way and there's nothing to be done, uh, you know, no, so, so no one to appeal to. But those of us who believe in the providential ordering of all things by God know that it's not a me mechanism that uh, governs the affairs of human beings, but a person who providentially orders things, and that person is God. Now, what that immediately, I think, causes us to, to do is think about who to blame <laughs> when things go awry in our lives. Um, and we see this addressed in Scripture. Now, the book of Job, for example. There we see in that story uh, a man who lives his life in order to please God. He's tremendously blessed. And then everything goes awry and everything falls apart and, and uh, he loses everything, including his health. And he's sitting there in a dust heap, uh, on a dust heap, you know, pouring ashes over himself and his three friends show up to comfort him. The friends of Job. And what, what do they say to Job? Well, in effect, in long, windy sort of uh, verbiage, <laughs> they say, you're to blame, Job. You had this coming. You know it. Now, we didn't know that you had this coming, but it's obvious that you had this coming because God is just. And God justly orders things, and when things happen to people, it's because they deserve it. So, you know, that old book by, you know, Kushner, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, they're not good. <laughs> you know, uh, bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people, and that, it's that simple. But Job insists, I didn't do anything wrong. He's adamant throughout the course of the conversation. I, I didn't do anything to deserve this. And we know, because we've had a glance behind the curtain, that he's right. The way the story opens, we see that there's a whole lot more going on that Job has, can have an appreciation for. In fact, when the story ends and the Lord speaks to him from the whirlwind, he doesn't even explain what it was all about. Isn't that kind of frustrating? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you, if you were in Job's spot, wouldn't you just like to know? <laughs> I just knew what this was all about. But even then, Job just says, that's it. I'm, I'm not in charge. You're in charge. You're just. I'm not. And then everything, of course, is set right. But there is another passage in John's Gospel, chapter 9. Do you remember this episode where Jesus is walking along with his disciples and they come across a man born blind? And what's their question? 
They ask him, okay, who's to blame? Who's to blame? Why is this guy born blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And they expected a direct answer. But Jesus knew that uh, the answer was none of the above. And he says, neither of those things is the case. Uh, the reason that this person finds himself in this situation is so that the works of God might be put on display. Then he heals him. In other words, there are things that are going on that God is up to that we don't have a full appreciation of. And God's glory is something to keep in mind. In the circumstances we find ourselves in, these are circumstances in which God's glory can be put on display. And I think we can take a great deal of comfort in that. Now, nevertheless, we are to blame for a lot of things. And this is one of the things that the psalmist tells us here in verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Yes, I am to blame for a great deal. Maybe I'm not to blame for everything I'm passing through or experiencing. But it's like that father who maybe overdoes it with disciplining his child and learns that the child hadn't like actually done anything wrong. And then the father says, well, then the spanking was for all those things I didn't know about that I know you got away with. So just count it, you know, uh, and it, you know, it's being a payment for that. Now I'm having a little fun with that. But uh, there is really the, the, the reality that we are blameworthy and there are consequences to our actions. And very often we find ourselves having to pay for our sins because those things that we've done uh, have placed us in, in debt and we, they need to be addressed. Those matters need to be addressed. And we're told in Scripture that this is true for everyone. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. So you're not an exception to the rule. This is one of those things where we can say the rule applies, and uh, if you fit into the category all, and you do, then it applies to you. It applies to you too. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, that's a marvelous way to kind of put it because the very word sin, harmatia in Greek, means to miss the mark. And I noted this last week, I think, in the course of the sermon. So every action has an objective or a goal or a target. And uh, the target ought to be the glory of God. And when we miss the glory of God, we've sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. Now, the uh, important thing to keep in mind with regard to this is that uh, this is uh, not an excuse. You can't say, well, what do you expect? I'm just a human being. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Lighten up. Just lighten up. Take it easy on me. I don't deserve to be condemned because you've got your sins too. You know, there's this tendency, I think, uh, to sort of dismiss sins as mistakes, just errors in judgment, like, you know, you got the wrong answer on the math question on, you know, the multiplication table or whatever, and say, well, what do you expect? You know, human beings are fallible. But uh, God doesn't grade on the curve. Um, I've been a professor, I've taught philosophy at the college level, and every once in a while, you know, I would grade on the curve. And those were days where you ended, you know, some students ended up hating other students because, you know, they were the people that spoiled the curve, you know. <laughs> we're grading on the curve today and Bob got 100, so that means that, you know, 
you know, you've all failed <laughs> or, or whatever, what have you. But God doesn't grade on the curve, not because God is arbitrary or mean-spirited or anything like that, but because God's glory and eternal life co-extant. In other words, you can't separate the two. Uh, holiness and eternal life, again, can't be separated. In other words, uh, in order to enjoy eternal life, there has to be a, uh, you know, a, a, a real obedience, a, a real moral perfection that is lived, uh, and consequently, um, it's not just because God sets impossible standards, but that the standard of eternal life uh, can't uh, be compromised. It's just, it's just the way it is, which means that we're in a tight spot. <laughs> we're in this spot where we can't save ourselves because we've already done uh, some things that really make, it, make us unqualified or disqualify us uh, when it comes to eternal life, and here we are. And that means that what we really need, what you need and what I need, is mercy. Mercy. I remember one time, I think I've told this story before, but when Marla and I were newly married, we had nothing. I mean, we were just living hand to mouth. And I managed to bounce like a half a dozen checks because I deposited, you know, a pay check and it hadn't cleared yet before the checks came in to draw on the funds that weren't there. So, you know, back in those days, you know, six late fees or, or bounce check fees were like, that was like deadly, you know? So I went to the bank and I presented myself to the, to the vice president uh, there at his desk and I said, I'm not here to explain away my failure to let that check clear before I wrote those checks. I'm here not because uh, I'm just, but because I need mercy. <laughs> and I just said, please, <laughs> please be merciful to me, a bounce check maker. <laughs> and he looked at me and, and he said, you know, no one has ever done this. No one has ever asked for mercy. Everybody's try, everybody tries to justify themselves. And you're the first person that ever you know, said, I'm to blame, and please have mercy on me. But unfortunately, the bank doesn't work that way. <laughs> and I, there's nothing I can do for you. Anyway. <laughs> Fortunately, uh, we have a God uh, who gives us a reason to hope. And uh, we're told in the seventh verse there, with the Lord there is steadfast love. I want you to know when I spoke to that banker that I wasn't feeling the love, baby. I was not feeling the love. And there's plentiful redemption. Plentiful redemption. In other words, the resources that are required to address the price that we owe uh, are there. You know, you think about uh, the kinsman redeemer in Scripture. There are some marvelous episodes in Scripture where we see the kinsman redeemer in action. So the way the kinsman redeemer was supposed to go about his work was in terms of addressing the needs of his relatives is, is uh, there, that this person was supposed to come to the aid of a person who was unable to help themselves, right? We see that in Ruth with Boaz, uh, the kinsman redeemer, uh, redeeming Ruth and her mother. But also in the story of Abram, you know, when he saves Lot, his nephew, who's been abducted by a bunch of warring kings, he 
musters his resources and goes to save him. 318 fighting men from his own household. That's a remarkable number. Uh, so fighting men would mean men who have come of age but are not so old that they can't hold a uh, you know, weapon any longer. So we're talking about men in the prime of life that he was able to... So, you know, the, the, the household of Abraham was not a small affair. Like when Abraham arrived in town, people knew. What are all those semi-tractor trailers doing there? Abram's moving to town. <laughs> so he, he, he had a way of drawing attention to himself and his household. But this was a, a pricey thing. This, this, this was an expensive, costly affair, redeeming his left nephew Lot from captivity. This was something that cost Boaz something in terms of uh, what he had to do to redeem uh, his relatives. And we're told that uh, we serve a God who has the resources to redeem us. Uh, he will redeem Israel. And Israel, by the way, is a remarkable word or name. I think we, we use it without remembering what it implies. It means Prince of God. It means in some sense we belong to God's household if we can be included in Israel, God's people, and we have an inheritance. We're joint heirs with Christ, and uh, we have resources available to us because we're connected. We know someone in a high place. We're told here in verse 5, though, that it doesn't necessarily happen on our timeline or when we'd like it to happen. It says here, verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. Are you a patient person? Are you a patient person? I'd be patient, but I can't wait to be patient. I don't want my patience given to me now. I want, I want to have patience right now. One of the kind of interesting things about uh, virtues is that you acquire them by actually exercising them. Have you ever thought about this? Uh, you become courageous by doing courageous things. You become honest by telling the truth. You become patient by waiting. <laughs> This is part of the, the process, you know, it's inescapable. You, you can't uh, uh, acquire patience without having to exercise patience. And I, I, so I, was on the, I was on the plane here a couple weeks ago, and uh, I got to witness some impatience. And there was a father with a son, and they had just sat down, and we had just taken off, and we had just kind of gotten into the air, and the kids asked, you know the question, are we there yet? And like all the seats around just kind of burst out laughing and we we're all saying, we wish we were there. We wish, because kids watched apparently too many television shows where you just like get into this machine and you find yourself someplace else in an instant. But anyway, uh, you know, patience. Now patience must be precious in God's sight because he minds it in each of our lives so much, you know, so, so, so regularly, you know, there's, there are so many things that we're supposed to wait for and uh, that waiting, though, is not a fruitless thing. Uh, we're told in Scripture that patience is part of a, a whole panoply of virtues that should characterize the Christian life. Long-suffering, long-suffering, being able to put up with things uh, for a long time before they're uh, addressed. Ever notice that time seems to slow down when you're in the depths? You know, it just kind of moves at like the pace of molasses. Why can't this kind of get better qu quicker? Um, and I think partly that's due to the fact that when you are in the depths, you're in the dark. 
and there's so little to distract you, right? One of the marvelous things about all of the technology that we have uh, is that we have so many ways to distract ourselves. But when you're alone and in the dark, and all you have to think about is what you are experiencing and going through in life, it's as though your mind is like a magnet and all of your troubles are like iron filings and they just sort of <laughs> just collect and you find yourself there unable to get to sleep, get a little relief that way if any, you know, if, if anything. But in the midst of all this, uh, we're told that we should be uh, anticipating a transition, a rising of the sun, a light dawning like watchmen waiting for the morning. And uh, to emphasize this, we're told that twice, that's where we should find some comfort, that just as the sun inevitably rises each day, so the deliverance that we're looking for will come and we are to watch for it and wait for it with the kind of anticipation that we see with a watchman at a city gate at night. Now, um, something to kind of help you think about this, um, something to kind of keep you can sort of refer to or, or your mind can go to to keep your hopes up. Pilgrim in the um, Pilgrim's Progress, you remember the story, right? He finds himself in Doubting Castle, this dungeon, locked up. And while he's there, all the while, he has the means of escape available to him, but he just doesn't think about it. And what is the means of, for his escape? It's the promises of God, right? When he uh, recalls that he has the promises of God, he discovers a key that he can use to unlock the door and get out of that dark, forbidding place. And the thing to keep in mind as you think about that, you know, marvelous image is um, Bunyan did hard time. Twelve years in prison for preaching. It reminds me of uh, Elijah Craig. I learned about Elijah Craig not too long ago, the, the, the father of a bourbon. Uh, he's attributed with the, he was a Baptist preacher, by the way. Baptists have come a long way from the good old days. But uh, he was imprisoned for preaching. And uh, what he did uh, in prison was preach so loud that the people in the neighborhood could still hear him. So they actually built an extra wall around the prison to keep people far enough away so they couldn't hear him. So he didn't let being in prison keep him down or, or prevent him from preaching. And uh, I think, you know, you and I, when we find ourselves in those difficult places, when we find ourselves in the dark, really down, we need to recall, we need to to turn to those promises, the promises of God, that if, for, you know, if, uh, in, in no other way change our circumstances, but by means of changing the, our outlook on our circumstances, open a door to Doubting Castle and allow us to see some light in a situation where it may seem to be devoid of light. And we see this referred to, of course, in verse 5. 
Verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His Word, in His Word, I hope. What Word? The promise. The promise that He has the power to redeem and that He will redeem and save you and save me from the troubles that we find ourselves in. Now, things can take a while, as I noted, and one of the things that we read in the book of Proverbs is a hope deferred makes the heart sick, and maybe you feel sick sometimes just at the thought that things just aren't coming about as quickly as you'd like to see them come about. But, you know, when it comes to the work of God in our lives, we can't really see what God is up to most of the time. I can't help but remember the fact that Bunyan wasn't the only reformed luminary poet that uh, faced hard times. Let me give you a few others. John Newton, William Cooper, John Milton, Milton Blind, author of Paradise Lost. One of the things I think in the Reformed tradition that has characterized, at least the Reformed tradition historically, is we've had a way with words. There's an emphasis on the word in our worship and theology that I'm afraid um, isn't as appreciated as it once was. And one of the reasons why uh, we don't have the great poets and the great writers that we used to be able to, to present to the world and say these are representatives of our theological outlook is because I don't think we take the word as seriously as they did. I don't think we turn to the word for encouragement and direction and wisdom the way they did. Now, it's not just the word sort of on the page, but the one who speaks that we trust in. His word, as it's recorded and represented to us in Scripture, is intended to get us thinking about him and thinking about all the things that he's done for us in the past and will do for us in the future and the fact that he's at work in our lives now. Work in your life now. The Lord is at work in your life right now. And he's up to something. He's pursuing his glory in your life as a believer. And uh, the way he's going about it, he doesn't explain to you, just like he didn't explain to Job what he was up to. Nevertheless, this is the thing that we have to look forward to, and that is the story will end well for God's elect. And I encourage you to take comfort in that. So wherever you find yourself at this moment, you know how despairing the moment might seem, take hope in God's word. Look to his word and find the strength that you need to bear up under it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We're grateful that uh, we enjoy access to the scriptures in a way that people in the past did not. Pray, Lord, that you'll help us not to take it for granted, but to receive uh, those uh, things that we can receive from it, encouragement and faith and hope and love. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us wherever we find ourselves at this moment. Maybe there are people who are just on top of the world right now and, and uh, are not able to directly relate to this particular passage of Scripture. But there are, are probably others who feel like they're in the pits right now, that they're going down. And I pray, Lord, that you would help those folks uh, and encourage them and give them a sense of hope that can be uh, 
derived from your word. In Christ's name, amen.